But I want to continue encouraging you by saying two things. First, that prophecy was actually fairly normative in the New Testament, perhaps more conspicuously than you think. For example, in Acts chapter 11, uh, chapter uh, 2, the fact is that this was the essence of Peter's sermon in explain, explaining the outpouring of the Spirit. We mentioned the fact that God intends to pour His Spirit out on all flesh, all people, so God's not racist. Uh, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, so God's not sexist. It also means that your old men will dream dreams, along with the young men who see visions, so he's not ageist. And it means also that God is not a socialist who discriminates against other classes. It means that God cares for all kinds of people from every different background, so that your servants, both men and women, will, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. They would be the least you'd expect last to prophesy, slaves, household bond servants. But you see, as I've been saying, he's an equal opportunity employer. So there are many instances. In Acts 11, Agabus comes down to this wonderful burgeoning church at Antioch and has a spectacularly significant word about forthcoming crop failures and harvests being lost so that it's going to lead to famine. And the practical implications of this are that the church in Antioch, which is north of Israel in Gentile territory, is to take an offering to help their beleaguered Jewish brethren in Jerusalem who would be very suspicious about this Gentile church, even yet. It took very great mavericks and adventurers to plant this church at Antioch. And here's a prophecy telling, look, you just reciprocate the blessing. They're going to be in need very shortly. Take a big offering. Show them that you love them, even if they're not so sure about you yet. That's how practical it is. We saw apostles launched in Acts Antioch 2, through this team of prophets and teachers. Judas and Silas then went following this church-planting mission to encourage the churches Paul and Barnabas had planted. Two prophets, they're called. Do you remember there was an evangelist now aged in by Acts 21 called Philip who had four daughters who prophesied? We don't know their names. We don't know where they did this. We don't know to whom they did this. But what we do know is, oh yeah, and he had four daughters who prophesied. So there it is, this casual reference to prophecy. What about Timothy? Stare up the gifts in you which came to you through a prophetic word when the body of elders laid their hands upon you. I did a study once through the whole of Acts looking for this element of revelatory activity, disclosing activity. Do you know there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts? There's 27 of them that contain this operating activity of revelation to the people of God. 27 out of 28 chapters of Acts contain this. I concluded this. The book of Acts is the only inspired church history we possess. I love reading church history. This is the only inspired church history book. And it means then, if the Holy Spirit has penned and ensured that we realize this is all through the book of Acts, through the three to four running decades that it covers, then it means 
that it is a normative activity for the church today because the book of Acts is not just descriptive of what happened 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away in Israel, but it is prescriptive for what is to happen right through the church age till Jesus comes again. In other words, it's like when you used to go to the movies and you still do see trailers, don't you, for uh, forthcoming films. Because you pay good money to see this one, Avatar, or wherever it was. And they want you back as quickly as possible to pay the same £12 again. That's what it costs in London, by the way. £12 again to see something else. It's a, you read the book of Acts just like this, coming soon to a local church near you. <laughs> and that's what it's designed to do. However, I would add this, the prophecy is not infallible like the Holy Scriptures. For Paul says we prophesy in part. Ek miros, mirus means just partially. So don't go around strutting, I'm a prophet. My words drop like gold. You better treasure them. They're totally infallible. No, no, we, we prophesy in part. We get it wrong sometimes. How many of you know that? And similarly, we are therefore to test prophetic utterances. Paul says, do not despise prophetic utterances. You'll have plenty of temptations to do that. Say, that was rubbish. What you're meant to do, however, is weigh them, test them, discern the value of them, sift them, so that you will hold on to that which is good and reject that which was evil. So there's always a mixed phenomenon, and sometimes it's more accurate than not, and sometimes it's more inaccurate than accurate. So we've got to test it. There are examples even in Agabus are partially accurate. And if you check those scriptures, you'll have to see for yourself, Agabus got it slightly wrong. You'll have to find out why. Finally, prophecies under the authority of scripture. Paul said, if anybody wants to dispute what I'm writing here in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, he thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And if you ignore this, you're going to be ignored. So guess who's got the most authority here? The Corinthian prophets or Paul? Well, I think it's Paul. And he's swinging the lead here. I mean, he's throwing his weight around. I mean that he's saying, whatever you get from God, this is Scripture. And it's more authoritative. Actually, that's the only way you grow if you submit to Scripture. Now then, how do prophetic words come? Well, there's a number of ways they can come, and I've suggested some of them here. You can give a prophetic oracle. You can make a declarative statement. You can even say, I, this is what I believe the Lord is saying to us now. It might be a directional change. It could be an exposure of sin. It could be an element of vision that is coming to the church. I, in my retreat and my sabbatical recently, I really felt that God had a new chapter to open up at Westminster Chapel, and it was to do with us becoming an Antioch church in the center of Westminster. Well, if you've read these chapters, Acts 11 and 13, for example, on the Antioch church, you'll see what an amazing church it is to emulate, but we've been prophetically told we're to do this. I spelt it out in six sides of A4 to our leadership team, the things God told me we were to emulate, and ten goals that we were to pursue for the next ten years for the church. Every one of them said, that's right. It witnessed to them. That's how 
almost like oracular it is to us. It carries that weight. You can give a prophetic exhortation, which is to stir someone to a change of mind or action that has not been characteristic of them so far. This is often something that someone most definitely needs to heed, and it may well relate to things that they've never readily acknowledged even to themselves before now, of a change of life and lifestyle, which is going to be very different. Urgent action on their part, which <coughs> on the, of those who hear it, in the light of what they've just heard. You can pray prophetically, and often in a lineup of people or in a small group, you know, sometimes I've been in meetings I, I, um, where, I, where I've started just to pray a blessing on people. And that very moment, I've read their mail. So I'll prophesy over them. But there's 24 people to go yet, so I'm not going to do that with everyone. So I'll just move down the line. Woo, I've just known something about this man. And I, I meant to pray this, but I'm praying something entirely different. And then he starts crying. I'm thinking, how can I do this? Is No, we'll just go quickly now to the next person. And all 24 people I've had a prophecy for. And the church has been laughing or crying alternately because they know them and I don't. You see, this is just how we beautifully this gift works. It's too... It may be too late for us to be moving in this tonight, I don't know. But maybe you'll be moving in it tonight before we're over. You can bring a prophetic song. And a prophetic song may well be not only the words, and how many of you are musicians or lead worship here or in your own church if you're visiting, and melodies. Have you ever seen this? How many of you have seen this happen spontaneously at conferences, in church meetings, a prophetic song comes. It's beautiful. It's, the poetry is amazing. And the melody is haunting and unforgettable. Anybody seen that? Hands up. See, it's that rare. But when it comes, you know that was God. So you can bring a prophetic song in a meeting. You can read a portion of Scripture as prompted by God. And this is one of the most accessible ways of moving. You feel a verse quickened for you. You know, I felt a verse quickened for me on the train coming here for this church. And do you want me to read it to you now? I will. I don't know if it's on the mark, but I've, I've had it come back to me three times. So I will, will read it to you and leave it with you. And this is what you're free to do with prophecy. Ignore it. You're free to ignore it if it's not relevant to you. But I would be remiss if I didn't at least tell you, wouldn't I? And this is what it is. It's Jacob's blessing over his sons, and more particularly, his blessing over his son, Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall. And I meditated on it, and I believe that God has seen the fruitfulness of this church its crops of grapes have produced new wine of the kingdom. So it's a blessing church, this. Not a curse on people. It's a blessing church. Because you've known what it is to tap the resources of the Holy Spirit, which is the spring that's mentioned. But I believe God is going to extend your influence. And it may be locally, it may be to another town, it could be internationally, but I believe you must be thinking about extending your influence. And this is over a wall. 
So there's going to be barriers and hindrances to you doing this. You may have even dismissed the possibility of it for a while. You may have been deterred and discouraged because nobody's enthused about what you've been suggesting. But this is over a wall. But God wants to extend your influence to a place and people it hasn't gone to soon. So you need to be thinking about that. It could be a church plant. It could be an area of ministry you've never dared venture in. It could be on an estate that is unthinkable. But this is the word God gave me for you. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. So whatever God's been doing among you has got to be exported. So just take it or leave it, because I'm not here to impose anything on you, just to suggest something that I felt, well, that came so often I couldn't ignore it. Then you can speak a personal prophecy to an individual. And of course, this can happen to the family. My son, who's been the youngest son who got married last Saturday, has been the most, we've, of the three sons, the most we've worried about. He's never been clear about God's will for his life. He's never had a steady job. He barely got his degree. And he was getting married last Saturday, and as of a month ago, he didn't have a job. How scary is that? Because that could mean he'd move in with us. <laughs> he's lived with us till he's 24, so that's long enough, I would think. Two years ago, a friend at church said, you should apply for this job with a company called Metaswitch. It's one of the top 10 companies in the country. They specialize in software for companies with massive problems to solve. It's the one interest my son has, computer programming. And he served our church magnificently with it. And he'd love to get a job in it. But he's wasted two years before he applied for that job. Only one, th only one people out of every 1,000 applicants get an interview. And only one in 50 gets a job from those interviews. So that's why he probably didn't apply. He was scared of rejection. But since he was getting married in a month, he applied. <laughs> and he worked on this amazing CV. He didn't tell a single lie in it. But it was amazing. <laughs> Do you know they asked him to come for an interview? Do you know they called him back for a second interview? And what a grilling that is. You do all kinds of things for two days in a hotel somewhere in London. Do you know he got the job? The morning he went for his interview, I woke up and I said to him, God's put a thought in my heart. It's from Revelation chapter 2. Behold, I put before you an open door which no man can shut. I said, he also puts closed doors which no one can open. But son, I really feel God's going to open this door for you. So I don't think you should be in a panic. Just be yourself and do whatever they ask you. And don't feel tense because the only doors you want to go through are the doors God opens for you. So if it shuts, it'll be God. So he was at peace. And he blew the socks off him. He did. I don't know how he managed it, but he is an amazing boy, I've got to tell you. He's the, of the three sons I have, 
he's, he's probably the most able intellectually, and the other two are bright. One's an anesthetist, and he spent seven years training to do that. So you get the idea. He's just never used his gifts to the full. Got the job. Isn't it great to have prophetic people around you? I passed on a personal prophecy to him. You can pass on prophetic visions and dreams. What's the difference? A vision is something you get while you're awake, unscreened on your imagination, and a dream is something you get when you're asleep. Now, that's not rocket science, is it? However, you'll need to interpret it accurately, and I'll come to that in a moment, and you can perform a prophetic action, like Jeremiah wore a yoke of bondage and walked around Jerusalem. And um, it was, was it he who stripped himself naked? No, that was Ezekiel. Stripped himself naked to speak of the unspeakable shame and disgrace and treatment they would receive at the hand of the invading armies, army of Babylon that would come. And that's what they did. They used to make pyramids of people's heads to intimidate, bleeding heads that had been severed from prisoners of war. And they direct this 20 feet high, outside the city walls. And the message was plain, if you don't surrender and open the gates for us now, that's what will happen to the inhabitants. And then Jeremiah and and Ezekiel had the task of bringing judgment warnings to the people of God as vividly as they possibly could, which involved nakedness and eating dung. How many of you want to be prophets? Right, how does this come to us? Let's begin with another helpful definition. Prophecy is the verbalized expression of God's thoughts. This is page six, through a spirit-inspired person. It's transmitted to a particular individual or group of persons at a particular moment for a particular purpose. That might sound complicated to you, but it's putting into words what God's brought to mind to encourage, comfort, and exhort a person who needs this. It is God beaming his thoughts down on us in this way. So we need to have our spiritual antenna up. I often urge people to have their baloney detectors up as well because we hear a lot of rubbish on the TV from pseudoscientists who have no empirical evidence for the stuff they're asserting. So we need our baloney detectors up today. We sometimes need them in church too. But what we most need is, is our spiritual antennae to hear from God for the encouragement of other people. So how do these things come? Various ways. Sometimes it's a spillover of a, of a heightened period of spiritual activity through contact with mature prophetic people. So, for example, in the mid-90s, it was amazing. That wave of the Holy Spirit that got nicknamed the Toronto Blessing because it seemed to have started in that city swept through 8,000 churches in the UK and 300 of them were in New Frontiers. We couldn't be in a meeting without the Spirit visiting with power. Whether it was 600 at prayer and fasting or five hours in our Sunday evening services in Winchester, the Spirit just kept sweeping through and the prophetic just just splashed over everybody and changed lives and directions. We wouldn't have got that second building at Winchester if it hadn't been for that move of the Holy Spirit. And that money wouldn't have been released if it hadn't been for the Holy Spirit. So that's as practical as getting a building or a facility. But what I'm trying to say to you is, 
you can't be around people during such times without it spilling all over you and prophecy flowing on you and to you and through you. So these are intense times. And of course, this is what happened to Saul of Tarsus. Saul, the king, who would be king, as it were, when he was going looking for his dad's wandering ox. He just bumped into a bunch of prophets and joined them temporarily. If he could prophesy, you can. Right? Because there's a contagion being around prophetic people. That's why we've got to encourage it in our churches. Sometimes it's through a process of inquiry. How did Joshua knew? No, it was Achan who had stolen the gold and forbidden garment from a tent when they plundered the city. Well, if you remember, he cast lots over the tribe, then the clan, then the family, then the household, and then the person in that household. I think Achan must have been sweating as the circle grew ever so narrow and smaller until it focused right down on him. Why didn't he repent long before that point? Why didn't he confess and hand the stolen goods back? He actually didn't believe God knew and would dare tell a man. But he told a man. But it was through a process of elimination. I've seen Benny Hinn go down, hmm, there's, there's someone in this block, yeah. They've got heart condition. God wants to heal it. Just identify yourself. And they won't because it's embarrassing, isn't it? It must be somebody else with a heart condition, not me. Or it, it even says names. Or oh, it must be another Dawn, not me, because God wouldn't do that for me. So he'll come down the row like this and he'll wander back and forth and he'll say, wait a minute, this is the row. And he'll look down, I've seen him look down the row and he'll say, it's you. You haven't got a heart condition. This is only for illustrative <laughs> purposes. But prophetically, I knew she didn't have a heart condition. <laughs> and sometimes God will have you do this. You're in the right ballpark. You know there's someone out there like this, and you, you're just waiting to hear from God with more accuracy. Then a dream while you are, a vision while you're awake. God will give you pictures on the screen of your mind and you'll know their significance because you can't shake them off. And you are forced by God, in a sense, I've got to meditate about this. It doesn't automatically communicate exactly what it's meant to be. You know, people stand up and say, Oh, I see, I see, I see an elephant. It is on a tightrope. It's walking across the Niagara Falls, wearing a tutu, and it has a pink umbrella. It's got extended in its trunk, and it's now falling, but the umbrella is acting like a, pro a, a, a parachute. Over to you, Pastor. What does it mean? <laughs> That's not his job. That's your job, you idiot. If you're going to bring such a, a picture... God's going to give you the interpretation. I doubt there is one for that. <laughs> but the onus is on you to find out what the interpretation is, and more importantly, what the application is. So we've got three stages here. Revelation, 
But your job isn't over yet. You've got to bring the interpretation and you've got to meditate on the details till it's clear to you. It's not going to help you or help anybody else if you don't know what its significance is. And the third question is its application. What are we meant to do with that? Avoid directing tight ropes across Niagara Falls. Uh, plunge into the Holy Spirit, but be careful. Who knows? Somebody's got to think about it, though. And if it's not foolish, it'll come out right. A dream, of course, is the same thing while you're sleeping. But I've found with prophetic dreams, they're very persistent. And unlike most of our dreams, when you wake up with this dream, you can remember it in detail. I had a dream five years ago Uh, I'd become pastor of Westminster Chapel. It was so vivid, I woke up and I chose some yellow A4 paper, lined paper, not white paper, this was a special dream. And I wrote it down and it took me five sides of A5 paper to write down every single detail of it. I've never done that before and I've never done it since. And... It was so vivid, I knew it would concern the future of Westminster Chapel, my ministry there, what kind of church we'd become, and how we would attain this, this characteristic of our whole corporate life together. And you know when I shared it with our leaders? One year ago. So it was stored for four years. But I, kept, I personally went back to it many times, and it brought tears to my eyes. But I knew this wasn't for now. This is for them. And then came. And everything was right to share this dream. And I've had people bawling their eyes out about it. It's it's bringing tears to my eyes right now. It's an amazing dream. It's what every church would dream to be doing. And I'm not going to tell you about it. (laughs) You've got to dream your own dreams because this is our dream. And it affects everything we do as a church. It affects me primarily as a preacher. And I've already begun to massively change as a preacher in line with what I saw in that dream five years ago. I couldn't do it before then. I was like tied up, handicapped. The church isn't right. The people aren't right. The circumstances, this, isn't, this is, can't be announced now. So I kept this dream on file. And it stands out in my inch-thick file of prophecies because it's on yellow paper. And I can find it any time I want, just like that. And I've read it and reread it and we've gone over it and we've all been breathless with excitement about it. And we're beginning to do it. Wow. Isn't it great to get dreams? And you'll know what they mean. Words may bubble up in your spirit. In fact, the Hebrew navi, navi means... Um, to boil up or bubble up. And this means that when you're in contact with people or in the vicinity of people, when this prophetic is coming, you feel like you're on the boil. You'll feel like, I can't, I can't keep this in. This is, just, this is just waiting to come out of my mouth. It's bubbling up. I'm bubbling up. Hmm. To pour forth words. That's what it means. It's just pouring out of you. You may think, well, I've got a sentence or two, and that's meaningful. But you, just, you start, and you can't stop till you stop, because this is going to, there's more coming. You start with a sentence, another one comes, another insight, 
by, by fourth sentence, the crying. By the fifth sentence, the bawling tears. So it's all right. You know this is God because they wouldn't be reacting like this if it wasn't. Next, um, I said a scripture may come with insistence. It's not just that you've read this and you just felt led to read it. It's that now for this person, this is the word from scripture for them. Like my son did, got that word about, behold, I put before you an open door which no man can shut. That was a grueling interview process. And he got it. I'm still flabbergasted. He's got a dream job. He started on £30,000 a year as a rookie in this firm. The sky's the limit. It's amazing, isn't it? He's been a bum. (laughs) Sponging off his parents, living from hand to mouth. God's so good. Sometimes you receive a word of knowledge, as some call it. I had a discussion with a man. I think this is an, accurate, an inaccurate term, but I'm using it because people usually do. But I think all this is is the gift of prophecy. All this is, it means you know what God wants to do for a specific person. It may be a healing. You receive a sensation in a part of your body. I don't suffer with dodgy knees or teeth conditions, but I felt pain, sympathetic pain in my body during a a healing service. And I know this is God telling me that's a condition he wants to heal. Sometimes before a service, I'll meditate for a while and say, do you want to do any healing today? I'll get seven words and maybe three of them are sensations that I don't normally have. So I'll write them down. I'll draw my bow at adventure. And I'll say, well, this is the fourth condition. This is the third. This is the fifth condition. Here's the sixth. And I'll just hope it hits someone. Sometimes, most times, the whole list has been true of people in that audience. And some of them are really weird, remotely possible conditions. But the people have responded to them and got healed. How wonderful. We went, I went into a, a hospital where a baby was born of a black couple in our church with a malfunctioning and, de- and uh, deteriorated liver, which is a terrible condition. She'll be dead within 10 days. And they can only barely keep her alive till that point. But what they're hoping for is a liver transplant from a dead baby. baby. So the, the only way this baby can live is for another baby to die. What kind of a horrible situation is that for her parents to be in? So I got my motorbike and I zoomed down to the hospital. Pray for a little baby. Come on in, come on in, she says. They're like, all the doors open. I put before you an open door. (laughs) And uh, I got to the bed. I was full of faith. I laid hand on the baby. Within two hours, the monitor figures began to reverse. Within three days, that liver was healed. Within Within five days, all the other organs that had been damaged through the malfunction of the blood, were also healed. And five months later, last Sunday, we dedicated that baby to the Lord. She's totally well. God, this gift is amazing. Because if you don't have that kind of faith that's come from prophetic word, you just, oh God, we see, if it's thy will, wouldst thou heal us this child? Do you know it's not going to happen? But you get to know things in the spirit. You may see a difficulty or diseased organ 
in your head. You may see a heart. You may see a kidney. You may see a pancreas. You may have a pain you don't know is not yours. In my book, Moving in the Prophetic, I tell you loads of stories like this to build your faith. The name of the condition may come to your mind, and you may not be a trained doctor. So where's this multisyllabic, Latin-rooted word coming from? And you don't know what it is. There's somebody here who is suffering from multinegular neutronidiosis. <laughs> no, I've never heard of it either. I don't even know if it exists. But somebody who's got it knows what it is. And God's saying, I want to heal that. You feel a growing burden for a personal situation. And sometimes this means God just says, I want you to minister into this area or say this word to someone. No, that's just me. No, it's me, and I'm burdening you with this condition. I'm burdening you with this word. It's the burden of the word of the Lord. I've had this over messages I don't want to preach. I told you about this rotten church I went to as a young pastor of 27. Honestly, it was the church from hell. It made our lives hell. By two and a half years there, I couldn't imagine bringing up my two sons who'd been born now in this church. I didn't want to be part of it. I only went to it because I was the pastor. (laughs) And I got paid to go there. I wouldn't have gone voluntarily, I can tell you that. So by the end of year three, I was desperate. I was almost disillusioned. I was on the verge of giving up the ministry. Do you know what God did? Did a number on me. I was talking about it one one, one Thursday morning after a horrendous children's workers meeting. (laughs) Honestly, a children's workers meeting the night before, which kept us up till two and a half hours after midnight. And the Lord, my wife said to me, do you know we're like that Laodicean church? It's neither hot nor cold. And I think we're in danger that Jesus is going to spew us out of his mouth. And I said, I've got to go. I've got to go to the study. I'll see you later. I'll, I'll be out when I'm ready. I turned up that Revelation 3 passage, the Laodicean letter. Within 25 minutes, I had a message, 40-minute message. It used to take me six to eight hours. I knew the church would never be the same again after that next Sunday morning. I knew I'd never be the same again. I knew Jesus would come and speak to the church, that I was to cancel the evening service and call everybody back to repentance, and that the Holy Spirit would come and I might lose my job. But this is our watershed moment. I call the message the church that made Jesus sick, which is not the most inviting message title you could ever come up with. Do you know, in that 40 minutes, you could have heard a pin drop as Christ had told me how to analyze what had gone wrong with this church, what there's needed to change, how they could repent, and what would happen if they didn't. I traced our past, our present, and our future. I gave them a hopeful alternative. I told them what would happen if hearing Jesus knocking at the door of this church, we actually let him in and gave him his church back so that he finally became Lord of this God-forsaken place. 
And that night, about two-thirds of the church came back, and I didn't know what to do. I said, well, I'm going to come join you on the front row because I'm going to repent too because I feel partly responsible these last three years for this mess. And people had got saved. Some good things had happened, don't get me wrong. But the longest five minutes of my life elapsed in that silence until someone burst into tears and another one over there did. And do you know how long that meeting lasted? Two and a half hours. Just... We were all ruined and then remade. And that church never was the same again. We actually changed its name to reflect what had happened. It was called Stanmore Evangelical Free Church. It was barely evangelical. It certainly wasn't free. And it was not a church at all, by my estimation. (laughs) And we renamed it Winchester Family Church because that's what it became became so amazing, church, that we didn't want to leave it. My wife cried for a year after Artie Kendall's letter arrived because she didn't want to go. And nobody knew why she was sitting in meetings crying, which were happy meetings. (laughs) And I couldn't tell them because it might not come off. It took a year, remember, to process this. Do you know when we had our leaving party? It was amazing. And do you know one of the presents they bought my wife? A box this size filled with 36 boxes of Kleenex tissues. (laughs) They now knew why she was crying, but they released us with joy to do that work. Well, let me finish there. I would just say, as I've put at the end of the chapter, when you deliver prophetic words, don't get spooky with people. And don't interrupt the meeting at the wrong time. Do you know there's a timing for the prophetic? And if you just listen to the Holy Spirit, everything will come round and you'll say, this is the moment. But you don't have to stand up and say, stop! Stop everything! Musicians, shut up! I'm going to bring a word from the Lord. No, you'll know the timing, and you won't be such an idiot as to talk like that. You'll get it right if you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Be submitted to godly leaders, then. If you're unsure, you come to Ant or say, do you know I'm sensing this, Ant? What do you think? I, I submit this to you. If I should bring it at all, and when I should bring it, I'll just leave it with you. Do you know, if you submit to leaders in this godly way, you will grow fast in the prophetic. But if you say, and he's not a spiritual man, and will probably tell me no, he doesn't even honor the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to butt in when I think it's right, not when he thinks it's right. You will not grow in the prophetic. God will dry up your gift. The devil will warp it into something it should never become. You will become obnoxious, Jezebelic, controlling, Absalomic even, thinking you should have his job. (laughs) Dangerous. Don't even go there. Avoid heavy directional words. I had a... um, (laughs) I don't even want to go into some of these. Heavy directional words. I've been told to go everywhere, including hell, by the heavy directional words. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, some of the jobs people are being told they're meant to do by heavy directional words. Some of the ministries they've been told they should uh, get involved in. When they can't sing for toffee, they should join the choir or something like that. <laughs> Write words down if necessary and send it to them as a letter. Let them weigh it down. Weigh, weigh it carefully. Use language that helps others to receive and weigh what you say. One man told me, because I'd resisted his call to the ministry, as did two of my fellow elders, that me and the other assistant pastor who were the main culprits in deterring him would be dead within a year. I've got a man at Westminster Chapel who's a total nutcase. We still have one or two of those. And um, he's been writing to me for 18 months now with regular emails telling me that I'll be dead soon because I haven't approved of his relationship with the girl. He hasn't got one with the girl, but he'd like to have one with the girl. And God hasn't, God's told her she's meant to marry him, but she's not um, received that. So she's Jezebel, and I'm going to die as a result of co- being in collusion. Oh, I'm not even going to go into it. However, the man who told me I was going to be dead within a year told me that 23 years ago. And I'm still here. So, you know, I don't receive nonsense like that, and nor should you. Also avoid secretive private approaches. Uh, just want to take you aside. Uh, we'll just go outside behind the building, shall we? And I've got a word for you. <laughs> you may not like it, but you need to hear it. Don't, don't go anywhere with a person like that. <laughs> Especially if you're a woman. Yes. All right? If it's of God, we can be open about it. We can be accountable. We can get responsible leaders around if it's pretty weighty. What have we got to lose? If we were wrong, they'll tell us we're wrong and they'll, we can correct it. We don't mess and play games with this stuff. We don't grieve the Holy Spirit and we don't want to give room for the devil, do we? Finally, be cautious over personal prophecies because, of course, people will feel pressurized if they honor personal prophecies. You don't have to receive anything that doesn't witness to you that it's of God. And be very careful about births, marriages, and deaths. (laughs) There's a couple who, they look like they're about 13, they haven't got no kids. I'm going to prophesy. By this time next year... You're going to have a baby. Now, I've done that. I've done that when I've known God was in it. I was in America once. I was staying with a, in a household I never visited with a, a couple. I arrived at 11 o'clock at night. She'd already gone to bed. And I didn't even know if they had kids. But in the night, I heard these words, You may be having a baby. So, at breakfast, I'm trying to edge around this subject. Uh, have they got kids? I've not seen any kids. No kids have got... No. It turned out they had no children. And this was... This was um, April. So, I'm thinking... I tentatively asked, have you had children? No. We've been trying for three years to have children. And we just can't conceive, so... I'd been taking time off work, she said, for six months so that everything could be restful and conducive to... 
Don't even go there. Well, do you know what? I shared the word with them. And I said, the operative word in the sentence is May. I think that's the month. And I'm thinking, I didn't tell them this. They're going to conceive in May next month. That's how powerful this word is. We went back to America, uh, back to Britain after that sabbatical. And May came and went. So did June, July, August. And no, no conception. No signs of pregnancy. Do you know what? She got pregnant in September. Do you know when the baby was born? May. She's had two more since. And I was delighted. But you've got to be careful about these things. Just because that came true doesn't mean to say you can go around predicting for every childless couple what and when it's going to happen. But I've done it a few times and it's been accurate. And they've had them. So we've got to be careful about births. Marriages. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, but if you're a single person, has anybody been suggesting when and who you should marry? Or that you should marry at all? Of course they do. And it often comes from well-meaning, desire to enjoy the same uh, pleasures they've had being married. And, you know, we, we impose on people our wishes rather than God's word. So let's be careful about this. But sometimes you just know when you know her, that girl is meant for that man, and that man's meant for that girl. And my wife have done this very carefully because we feel we've heard from God for these two. It's kind of a divine arranged marriage. (laughs) And it's just that these two have been so disillusioned and disappointed in love, they're not even going to try and explore something. And God may well say, just give them a few nudges, because you know and I know these two were meant for each other. But you've got to be careful about that, haven't you? Because you could be wrong. So you don't want to contrive anything. But many times you write, and they lived happily ever after. That's what we've seen. So deaths, I'd avoid those completely. (laughs) I wish a lot of people were dead, but I'm not going to tell them they're going to die. Okay, well, that's, that's it.